From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is The ER. On today's show, Spain faces its past. From 1936 until 1939, Spain was mired in a bloody, wrenching civil war. The fight pitted left-wing pro-democracy secularists against fascists. The right wing was led by Spanish General Francisco Franco. Town after town falls to Franco with little resistance. Refugees stream out before his advance. He finds town after town just a battered heap of stones as Spain's Democrats are in retreat. The war drew the attention of writers, from Ernest Hemingway to George Orwell. It also took the lives of many, many thousands of people and divided the country. In 1939, with the help of Germany and Italy, Franco emerged the victor. Undertrained and under-equipped amateurs were no match for the professional soldiers led by Franco or for the combined modern weaponry of Italy and Germany. The violence was not over. The brutality against civilians on the part of the fascist regime stands out, even in a century known for brutality. During World War II, though officially Spain remained neutral, Franco assisted the Axis powers. He permitted German and Italian ships to use Spanish harbors and ports, and he sent Spanish workers into Germany in service of the Reich. Spain was ready to enter into war and lend Germany an important service. Those were not the only Spaniards in Germany at the time. Several thousand Spanish Republicans who had fled Franco's Spain for France were deported to German concentration camps. Franco's fascist regime lasted until his natural death in 1975 and his legacy remains painful. The scars of Spain's civil war took years to heal, and in some ways, they never have. That's in part why the story of Enrique Marco was so inspiring to so many. Marco was a hero. He had fought in the Spanish Civil War and then been imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp. Years after the war, he became the head of an organization of former Spanish concentration camp survivors. He was their mouthpiece, and for years, he would proudly recount his story. Deslumbrado por los reflectores que te cegaban, ¿qué puedes decir de un viaje que en el cual te dan la comida y el agua para un viaje que ha de durar ocho diez horas? The problem, Marco's story was a fiction. He was never a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp. He was exposed as an imposter in 2005. The news sent shockwaves through Spain. El 11 de mayo de 2005 estalló un escándalo. Un hombre que llamado Enrique Marco era un impostor. Particularly jolted was Spanish writer Javier Cercas. In his books, Soldiers of Salamis and the Anatomy of a Moment, Cercas has been drawn again and again into the Spanish past. Now in his new book, The Impostor, Cercas untangles the many lies of Marco's life and examines the current state of the Spanish psyche. Welcome. Thank you very much. Who is Enrique Marco and what made him famous? Uh, okay. There were around 9,000 Spanish people in the Nazi camps. Most of them, you know, they were fighters of the civil war, Spanish civil war that finished in 1939. And they went to France, they were exiled. And when the Nazis came, they took them and they sent them to the camps. Most of them went to Mauthausen, a camp in Austria. And when the war was finished, slowly they went back to Spain. And then they created an association called the Amical de Mauthausen. And the Marco, Enrique Marco, was president of this association, right? The principal association of the Spanish deportees in the Nazi camps. And he, at that time, he became a really important person. I call him a civil hero, 
uh, a rock star of historical memory. You know, he was everywhere. He was in the in high schools, in the universities, talking about his experience in a Nazi camp in Germany called Flossenburg and about the, the, his experience on the Civil War and on the anti-Francos movement. And, you know, he was everywhere, insist. He was in the TV, he was in, uh, in the radio, everywhere. He was the spokesman. He was the guy who spoke in the name of all the big teams. And as always happened when he spoke in public, well, people were really moved. They cried. They, they you know. And after that, in May 2005, a few months after that, she was going to be the spokesman also, the, the guy who spoke in the name of all the victims of the Nazi camps in Mauthausen. You know, every year there is a celebration there. And for the first time, a Spanish victim was going to speak in the name of all of them. And, and it was going to be a very symbolically important uh, thing. The, for the first time, the president of the government in Spain was going to be there, the president of, of Austria, etc. And at the last moment, one historian called Benito Bermejo, which is one of the character, I would say one of the heroes, real heroes of this book, obliged him to confess that he hadn't been in a concentration camp. He had, he was not a victim of the Nazis. So yes, the scandal broke out. It was a terrible thing. And at that moment, I was really in shock when this happened. And I think that I asked myself three questions that are at the core of this book. The first question is why he lied on probably the worst crime of the history of humanity. Second question, very important, why everybody believed him. Nobody said, this doesn't ring true, right? And third question, and probably the most important one, is why I was so affected, why, why I was in shock when the scandal broke out. When did you first meet Marco, and how did you meet him? I think it was a long time ago, the case, Marco's case, broke out in the media. And I went to him with a filmmaker who has just done at that moment a documentary on him. And my impression was terrible, was, was awful. I mean, I felt he was a monster, physically a monster, and obviously morally a monster. But he seemed like a monster, or you thought the idea of meeting him was monstrous? I, I mean, somebody who lies on the worst, probably, crime of history, he's, he, he should be a monster, right? But the truth is that this guy is like all of us. That's the problem. That's what I discovered. Because he wanted to be loved. Because he wanted to become a hero. But he it's not just that he wants to be loved, though, right? He wants to be on the right side of history. But to be loved. And he got it, Sarah. He became a person really admired everywhere, right? When you first started sitting down with Marco, did he spin you? I mean, you describe him as a con man. Does he continue to tell the same stories that he was telling that won him so much love? Well, he thought that what he did was okay. So, yes, he went on telling the same stories. He's a very strange character, Sarah. I mean, when he was discovered, he didn't go out or he didn't disappear or something like that, which would be probably the normal thing. He went to the media to try to justify what he did. So he wanted me to write the book, but he wanted me to write a book to justify what he did. And of course, when he read the book, he was not happy. And I, I must tell that I wouldn't be happy if he would be happy, right? Because he wanted me to say that what he did was okay. And one thing uh, that is very important in this book is the difference between to understand and to justify. I mean, I wanted to understand Marco. 
I wanted to understand why he did what he did. Explain what Marco's fiction was and then explain what his truth was. He had fought in the Spanish Civil War, although he had there, – there's so many layers of lies and truths within his narrative. But start with what he told people had happened. Well, he told that people, you know, that he had been a hero in the Civil War. He had been a victim in the Nazi camps after the war. He had been a hero of the anti-Franco movement. You know, he had been in all the important things that happened in, in Spain and in Europe, and he had been a hero in all of them. And one thing that is extraordinary about Marco, Marco is a genius of lying. Behind every one of Marco's lies, there was a tiny truth. For instance, he had not been a prisoner in a Nazi camp in Germany, but he was in Germany during the war. He had been there. And he had been also in a prison, but not because he was a resistant of the Nazis, but because something trivial, something without importance. So behind that lie, th there was a truth. Or, or for example, he said, all the time he said, that he had been clandestine in Franco's Spain. And it was true. He had no you know, papers, no, no ID, no nothing. But it, it was not because he was fighting against Franco, but because he was a, a burglar, you know, because he robbed, he did some bad things. So he was, so that was important. Behind all his lies, there was this, this truth. And that's what, one of the reasons why he triumphed. And that's one of the reasons why it was so difficult to write this book, because I had to discover which were the, the truths that lie behind all his lies. Do you think he's a terrible man? Oh, yes, absolutely. And is it because he swindles the country, or is it because he deprives in some way the real survivors of their real story? Of course. I mean, he's cheating the victims. And of course, he's cheating not only a country, everybody. I mean, I can't understand why he did that, but I think it's really bad. You, you do a tremendous amount of research to uncover the lie. It's not just that you tell the story and we see that he is not actually a prisoner of the Nazis in a concentration camp, but you really retrace his steps. How did you do it? Where did you go? What did you see? Well, I started with him. The first thing I told him was, I want to tell the truth. You should know, know that. And he helped me to find, you know, lots of things, like his first marriage, which was concealed, his first daughter, which was completely secret. So without him, it would be impossible. So I met lots of people. I went to lots of places, archives, and these kind of things. In this sense, you can say that this book is a chronicle, but it's also a book on history, but it's also an essay, but it's also... Uh, an autobiography, not a biography. But you're uh, also but, a character in it. You play an enormous role in it. Yeah, that's very important. I mean, to begin with, I always say that I write adventure novels on the adventure of writing novels. I want the reader to be with me. I'm like the, the ambassador of the reader in the book. I want the, the reader to be inside the book. Except that at some points in the book, it feels as though you're not sure who controls the narrative, Marco or you. Yeah, Marco wanted that I wrote the book he wanted to read about himself. So in the end, the book is a battle. It's not a battle, only a battle between truth and lies. It is 
especially a battle between Marco and the reader. I don't want the reader to feel okay. <laughs> I mean, I, because the truth is uncomfortable. At one point, you mentioned that part of the both success of his lies and the difficulty of unraveling it is that there has been, with fewer and fewer witnesses to the war, uh, to both wars, both the Spanish Civil War and and the Second World War, that there has been um, an almost homage paid to the witnesses, and it, it becomes into tension with history much of the time. And there are fewer and fewer people who could have questioned him. Why yeah. didn't some of the witnesses question him sooner? I think it's a perversity of our times because there is a sacralization of the witness, you know, because there are few and few witnesses of the Holocaust, of the Civil War, etc. And there is a, you know, the witness has the truth. And of course we need the witness, but the witness can be wrong. I mean, memory is absolutely necessary, but it's not enough. We must be critical on him. There's another thing. is the confusion, Sarah, between victims and heroes. And of course, we must be with victims, victims of the Holocaust, victims of the war, victims of terrorism, of course. But they are not necessarily heroes. I mean, a hero is somebody who does something, who says no when everybody says yes, right? Marco was a victim, was a hero, was a witness, and told what everybody wanted to hear. So that's why his lies triumphed. So when you're sitting with him, though, in the room, does he continue to tell you what everybody wants to hear? Yes, of course. He was acting all the time. He's a great actor. Does he believe the character he's created? No. Well, he believes in the character he has created as an actor believes he is Hamlet when he's acting as Hamlet. But when he's out of, of the theater, he knows perfectly who he is. He's essentially a great actor. What Do you think that someone like Marco was more possible in Spain, or do you feel like it could have happened anywhere? It could have happened anywhere, but in Spain was easier for many reasons. Among them, that the Second World War was not important in Spain. You know, the Nazis and etc. is not part of our history to begin with. And then we still have problems with that part of our past. And we were eager, I would say, to be cheated. That somebody told us that we were on the good part of history, etc. So yes, I think that Spain was more prepared for that. At, at the end of Franco's dictatorship, there is no truth commission. No. And the transition to democracy takes place, and it takes a number of years before society starts to ask questions and he seems to sort of step into that void both for the Civil War period and for the period of the Second World War. Is it because of this search for heroes? Is that what it is? Is that there's sort of this greater need to find heroes in that moment, to find yourself on the right side of history? Yes, yes, I think so. I mean, Marco takes profit of this need to reconstruct history. I mean, it's a, there is a the terrible paradox. This man was all the time asking for truth. He was the civil hero of truth. We need truth on the past, on our past. And he was lying. Did his lies do damage to the survivors' organization and the reputations of the survivors themselves who had finally gotten a tiny bit of recognition so so far after the war? 
I'm, I'm, I don't think that it harmed them. I mean, at the beginning when the, uh, when the scandal broke out, yes, probably it was, it was not good for them. But it was not, I mean, that bad. Uh, I think so, or I hope so. Uh, yes, I, I don't think I don't think it was it was that bad for them. I mean, they are respected and they are they are still there and they are, and, and and you must know that. Well, it is important to say I insist that there were few of them because I insist it's only nine thousand people in Spain who were in the Nazi camps. I mean, it's, you cannot compare with France or with people around Europe, right? So Spain was not there were not so many people in there. And to some degree, that allowed him to tell his story the way that he did. And yes. He chose Flossenburg, a camp that had had very, very few Spaniards in it. So there was almost no one who could contest his his statement. And he even finds one Spaniard with a name very close to his uh, that he sort of adopts as his own. Yes, he was very intelligent on choosing that camp, precisely. It is a tiny camp, one of the few camps in Germany. And yes, he chose that camp because there were no, or he thought that there were no uh, survivors, uh, Spanish survivors. So yes, yes. On page 131 in the English translation, you write, No one, as I've said before, is obliged to be a hero or to put it another way. It would be as facile as it would be unjust to reproach Marco for the fact that just like the vast majority of his compatriots, he didn't have the courage to defy a dictatorship capable of jailing, torturing, and executing dissidents. No. There can be no reproach, none, but for the fact that many years later he sought to occupy a place in the past that he had not earned, attempting to persuade people that throughout the Franco regime he had belonged to the tiny, valiant minority who said no, rather than to the millions of fanatics, rogues, cowards, and the indifferent masses who said yes. Yeah, I agree with myself. I mean, (laughs) I, I cannot blame people who accepted a terrible dictatorship like Franco's dictatorship. I mean, you cannot oblige people to be heroes. And to confront that dictatorship, to rebel against it, you should be a hero. And the proof is that there were few people who did that. And most of them died or were in jail. So I don't blame people who accepted the dictatorship. What I blame is people that now invent for themselves a past of heroes when they were not. There was a large movement at the beginning of this millennium to forcibly open up the past, literally in some cases, uh, the Association of the Recovery of Historical Memory began digging up mass graves in, in around the country. How does that connect to this story? That was a good idea. I mean, to face the past is good for the present because this past is not past. This past is a, is a dimension of the present without which the present is mutilated. So that was what German people did uh, in the seventies, and you know, in my opinion, Germany has done in a in a very, in a quite good way, the best country in in Europe, and that's what we should do. But the problem is that we didn't do it in the right way. We just did half of it, and we used it. I mean, media used it, and the politicians used it in a not very honest way, and that's why we still have the problem there. What does it mean that they didn't do it in an honest way, that it wasn't done correctly? Well, for, for example, the law of historical memory, it's not a good law. What, what does the, the law do? Well, the law wants uh, certain things, for example, with mass graves, right? I mean, the state should take care of it. 
And what this law wanted is that people took care of it. And the result is right now we still have mass graves. And these were mass graves, and just I'm reminding, just in case people don't know, these were mass graves from the Civil War. I actually went to one of the opening of, of one of them in 2007. And you had people come to see the opening of it, who elderly people who had been alive at the time and young people who were trying to learn about the past. It was a very raw moment and awe-inspiring. And at the same time, it wasn't being promoted at the time by the government. This was being done by archaeologists and um, individuals. It seemed and like. private institutions. Yeah. Yeah, that's a problem. I mean, if we decide to do that, it's the government who must do that. And in a fast and just and fair way, especially for the families. But instead, what they did was to privatize the problem, right? Like they are doing right now with Franco's grave. That's a good way to do it right now, right? It's the government who decides and stop it. It's impossible that a fascist dictatorship has today a monument in a democratic country. That's no way to, right? It's a wrong idea. You're referring to the actual the mausoleum that holds Franco's remains, which is maybe 40 minutes outside of Madrid, and it's this massive 1930s-looking uh, fascist monument built you know, at the direction of Franco himself. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I, I, again, I insist, the movement was okay. The idea was perfect, but the way to do it was bad. And it's not only a bad political use of that, but also the media were very important. Who created Marco? Were the media who created Marco? I mean, it was perfect for them, for the radio, for the TV, etc. I talked to some honest journalists who have interviewed Marco, and they told me, you know, Marco was perfect because he gave us all the story, perfect story, with romanticism, with drama, with heroism, with everything, and we just had to put it in the paper. That was perfect. Instead, if we talked to the real victims, it was so difficult, they told me, we, you know, they were all people, most of them, they didn't want to talk, of course, as you know very well, the victims don't want to talk, and we must respect them, or what they told us was not interesting, etc. But Marco was perfect, because lies sell often more than truth. Sarah, that's terrible, but it's, it, is, it is like that. Where do you see yourself? Where do you see these books and, and their role in that public space? I don't think in these terms. I just try to write the best book I can write. I know that for some people is uncomfortable because Marco's case is a terrible accusation on lots of things that we've done not well. I mean, People felt that you should have left it alone once he was exposed? Yes, because it was uncomfortable. It was, yeah. This was telling hard things about us as a human beings and as a Spanish persons and as a, how we deal with history, how we deal with... Yeah, it was uncomfortable, absolutely. That's what probably interested me. I think that truth is uncomfortable and that we writers have to tell things that are not comfortable. Javier Zircas, thank you so much for talking about the imposter, uh, for telling the difficult, uncomfortable story of Enrique Marco. Thank, thank you very much. That's Javier Zircas talking about his new book, The Imposter. The ER this week was produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs, with help from Ben Soloway and Jeff Cote O'Donnell. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. <laughs>